Hi everyone, welcome to the Slice of Life podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm Novia. And I'm Nigel, your hosts for today. Slice of Life podcast is brought to you by Project Happy Apples, a palliative care project based at NUS Medicine, aiming to spark conversations about death and promote how palliative care, a team-based approach, can improve the quality of life of those with a life-limiting illness. On today's episode, we have our guest Janice Su, who was also a member of Project Happy Apples back in her medical school days and has since graduated in 2018. She is now an emergency medicine resident who has been volunteering as a MediMinder since her medical school days. MediMinder is part of the Star Pals program at HCA Hospice Care, which provides free of charge care for children and young adults with a life-threatening or life-limiting illness. Janice's role as a MediMinder provides parents or other caregivers a few hours of respite a month to care for other children in the family, run errands, or simply to take a breather. Her kind-heartedness and willingness to serve was also recognized at the Healthcare Humanities Awards in 2018. One of the winners of the volunteer category, she was highlighted for her commitment to bring comfort and joy to young patients with life-threatening conditions. Tune in now to hear more about her inspiring story, caring for the children and young adults under the Star Pals program at HCA Hospice Care. Hi Janice, um, thank you so much for joining us today on the Slice of Life podcast. So to start everything off, tell us a bit about yourself, um, maybe your motivations for studying medicine um, and moving into your current specialty in emergency medicine. Also, you can feel free to share anything about yourself. Hi everyone, uh, I'm Janice. I graduated from the class of 2018 from NUS Dongludin. Why I joined medicine was like going all the way back to my medicine interviews, but I joined medicine because actually my larger aspiration that I hope to do is really overseas humanitarian work where I hope to work on access of healthcare for people that are underprivileged as well as uh, people from developing countries. That may also uh, contribute to the reason why I'm currently in my residency training program, which is uh, in Sing Health Emergency Medicine. But I guess at the end of the day, I really just hope that I can make a small difference in various uh, lives of the people that we meet. And of course, uh, the people that we meet will be our patients in our work. Yeah. Okay, so that's actually very noble of you, I think, to want to help people overseas as well. Could you now move on to elaborate more about your role as a MediMinder in the Star Health program? Right. So um, I joined MediMinder when I am probably second or third year of medical school. So that's probably where you guys are at right now as well. So I heard of MediMinder from HCA Hospice Care because I used to volunteer at HCA probably at about you know, before medicine, about 17 to 18 years old. So yeah, it really goes all the way back. And I think at that point of time, I heard about Staff Health. And Staff Health is a branch of the HCA where they take care of children with terminally ill conditions. And of course, in the extension, that will also mean the family of these children. As you know, Staff Health involved, I think there is a need in terms of the respite care for caregivers. So MediMinder was a volunteering service that was uh, set up then that uh, hoped to provide respite care to caregivers as well as um, some of the companionship and befriending needs that the patients may require. Mm, okay, so we're just a bit curious, right? What's the process of becoming a trained MediMinder volunteer? 
it, it can be a bit daunting at first because like wow um you come in and you volunteer as a caregiver who has been with these patients for so long and these are patients with very special needs they are very a very special group of patients and some of them um it may not be the same befriending that we have when uh, we go to nursing home or like elder care senior activity center they come in sometimes with a lot of equipments like tracheostomy with tubes like nasogastric tube or what we call PEG devices and of course uh, even simple thing I, I remember like one of the most not daunting but more of a task to really do well and make sure you don't get it dirty is like changing diapers like tasks that we are also not familiar with as very blessed people when we first start out it can be a bit daunting so there's actually training program I remember that now it may have evolved like um you know they have better modules to do it or that but I remember it used to be like at least a two full days or like one at least a one full day of like training program where there is hands-on uh, teaching sessions so lectures and hands-on subsequently they actually put you on like tech on assignment so you follow on the MediMinder but this is all like before COVID times so there may have been changes so uh, you tag on for some assignments to have a feel of what it is and to see whether this is something that is suitable or something that you are hoping to contribute uh, and you find a comfortable with as well. Mm. Uh, yeah, I see. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, maybe you can tell us a bit more about the children, like what kind of conditions they have, um, Yeah, what kind of patients you have encountered. Yeah, so um, since uh, I've encountered many children, and I'll say it's a, really a variety I think children with terminally ill conditions is not something that uh, we meet like day in, day out. Even when I rotated through my pediatric rotation, um, it's a very small group and a very specialised group of patients. Uh, actually, it's a very wide range. So it ranged from my youngest kid being like two to three months old to my oldest being 16 years old. So there's really a wide range of age profile conditions. So they can be rapidly deteriorating, such as like most commonly cancer, like glioblastoma, oncological kind of patients, that their disease trajectory may uh, be a bit more rapid compared to those that are actually more stable, like for example, cerebral palsy, that is, uh, as we will have learned soon, when we enter the pediatric rotation, it's a non-progressive damage to the brain. So it's not progressive, but because the child suffers from different complications, like for example, like current pneumonia or very bad spasticity, that you know, um, they may qualify into the star pals service la, and hence uh, the star pals is in. So these are the disease trajectory for this child will be a little bit different. Then apart from this condition, they also have different needs because every child is actually not just a child, but a sibling to another or a parent or the grandchild, you know, to another. So the family are different, the family dynamics, the setup where they stay in and their needs in terms of medical needs, apart from all the devices that I shared about, their how stable they are, like the things that you have to be careful of when you enter the household, and their family dynamics when you enter the household, the family setup, all this can be very, very different. Yeah. That's very interesting here, actually. I think you raised a very important point on how you know, the child is not just a medical condition or a patient, but it's also someone's family member, and we have to really consider the family dynamics. So a bit more of a personal question. Uh, are there any patients that actually left a very deep impression on you during your time as a volunteer? Yeah, I think all of them leave, uh, leave a very deep impression. I think I carry with them, um, especially as I 
uh, practice medicine, like certainly the most challenging aspect when volunteering with staff health was when the child passed away. Like. I think that is um the common uh, struggles also amongst a lot of the volunteers. Yeah, as you, we know that some of them, they are very ill and we know that they may be at like, the last stage of life. So I think that when they die, when they demise, it is something that is definitely difficult. It's never easy. Uh, and we cope by, firstly, I think the community, like the, the MediMinder volunteering community, by the nurses and the medical and doctors, um, the medical team that we share with and all that. And I think there's also this Sunflowers Remembrance Day, where it's a um, day to help with the bereavement process of the family. So um, it's very nice because we actually get reconnected this is the day where not only the families, including the parents, the siblings come down, but also like volunteers, medical, like their healthcare team that has journeyed with the patient who has passed away. It's just very nice when we can come together, just recollect about the memories that we have spent together and also how we bring them forward in life and the days that uh, we are living, that we live it together with these memories that we have. So I think that, is, that, that was very useful in the bereavement process. In terms of like specific patients per se, I think that another difficult moment will always be the initial part when you befriend, when you try to know the child and the family better, like their needs and their wants. So I think one example will be when you first start out, because like I shared, every child is different. So there's never a one-size-fits-all. So it always helps when the first visit is always accompanied by the nurse, when they introduce you to the family, and they try as much as they can to tell you what is the peculiar and what are the unique needs of the child. Uh, I remember like there can be times that even though writing the PG feeding, we know like how to feed and all that. I remember there was this child that usually had frequently blocked PG and then I was very worried that I may have blocked one of them. So learning that there's still different tricks and different style that the family may be used to, we should just take it from that. Yeah, that's one of the struggles. Uh, another time sometimes so like the dynamic sometimes uh, between the family as well as the helper sometimes they may not have the most present like um or they are still sorting out the dynamic in terms of their caregiving roles and all that also just to be sensitive to these cues and needs and to give them the time and space now another aspect that may be a little bit challenging is also the emotions that different people may go through yeah, and to be a little bit more sensitive and to give them their time and space uh, for that so for example I remember that there's this 12 year old child it was more just for companionship and befriending where she hasn't really accepted the trajectory that she's on like, that you know she's yeah, and she can be in denial that, you know, she doesn't want the oxygen because that's like a sign of knowing that, you know, she is dying and she's terminally ill at all. So being able to recognize that people just go through the grief stages and, you know, the first part, the first stage is denial, right? And to just be with them. Yeah, and uh, sometimes I think that at that point of time, I was like, the first few part of my mediminder and I also don't really know how to respond, you know, what am I supposed to do and all. Yeah, which then brought back to, you know, what I'm really just companionship and just being there will help a lot like, to know that she knows that she's not alone in this journey. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I think you touched on quite a few points, especially about bereavement and how different families cope differently, you know, and there's different family needs and um, caregiving dynamics that you need to be sensitive about. So I want to talk a bit about bereavement and grief. 
Do you think the families that you encounter are usually quite accepting of the child's illness? And how does the child usually respond when it comes to their own illness? Okay, so first, the family response to um, a child who is terminally ill. I think there is very uh, wide group also, right? Um, there's also different parents and different responses. I feel that all of them uh, go through a very, very, very difficult time. A lot of time, it means apart from just the thought of their child suffering, and after five stages of grief and all that, um, I think it's never that clear cut, you know, they go through this and this. Sometimes it can be like, again, again, because there's so many different things that they have to accept, you know, when um, that child goes through this disease process. You know, the loss of function can be gradual, like different things that the child slowly cannot do, or like, you know, sometimes it can be the comparison with another sibling and various things. And then apart from just that thought, there's also the need to quickly change because staff health is a home palliative care. So most of them, they're at home or like hospice. And being at home means there's so many things. Their house like maybe go through a whole cycle of renovation to be able to bring their child back to a comfortable place where the child can be. So there's really a lot of changes that the child undergo, the family, the parents goes through. And during bereavement, I'll say that sometimes for me, as a medic minder, there's varying extent of closeness now with the parents. Some of them I'm a bit more closer to, some of them not so much. I think definitely all of them are very, very sad a moment. Yeah, and I've learned that we can come in differently. Like sometimes they just need a space. Sometimes it can be during the Sunflower Remembrance Day where we, we collect those beautiful memories together. So far, like, I see. sometimes I worry whether or not okay, my presence reminds of the more difficult times because that's when the child is more critically ill, right? But I think so far it has been great, like the work that staff has done, as in, I think, and that's the whole point of palliative care, right? When we can make dying not such a scary process, but something that can be added meaning in the remaining days of their life adding life to their remaining days. So it's been great that, you know, so far, even at those final moments, they are so even more precious. And it's not like a sad, I mean, it's sad, but it's not like a depressing kind of uh, memory to recollect. I think that is so far the sensing for the family point of view. Because there's also another perspective of siblings. Some siblings are very, very mature. And I think sometimes they give me a lot of perspectives in terms of how they support their sister or their brother through their dying process, how they process it themselves, even though a lot of time they may be very neglected in their growing up because there's just so much time and attention that's required to give to another sibling. Yeah, But it's very amazing how much a sibling can bless and how much they can process. The next part is really the patient, like how the patient feels. So there's a wide range of age. So it can be from, of course, a two to three month probably doesn't really process or like have that much of an understanding. It's just a lot of uh, seeing them in like respiratory distress, you know, breathless or human things like that. But they themselves probably don't really have the intellectual capacity in terms of processing bereavement, things like that. Lah. Yeah, then, but it goes to maybe uh, age of like two to three to five to six for which there can be a lot of questions that may come about to a point where they may be a bit more sick and yeah, where there isn't like verbal questioning or things like that. Lah. Yeah, then to the next point where the teenager like 12 years old, sometimes to 16 years old. At this stage, I think there may be a little bit more of maladaptation when they are struck by disease because like they really lose like going to school, um, like what is normal. Like their friends who goes to school, um, friends that they have last time when they are not having the condition. 
when I'm with them as much as possible. We just uh, try, because I, I guess that time I'm, I'm still a bit younger. Now maybe not so. <laughs> like this like 10 years ago. So like it's more of like a, just like a friend to them. So for me, my role for this group of youths and 12 to 16 is really being their, almost like they're a bit elder sister, elder friend, and just treating them as also a youth, like rather than, you know, someone who is the patient. Mm. Okay, so I think there's a lot of nuances when it comes to patient care as a MediMinder volunteer. Like, as you mentioned, you know, there's uh, the family members, the siblings and all that. I think it's very definitely very challenging to become a good volunteer. So was there at any point in time where you actually felt like pulling out of volunteering of this program? I guess I didn't really have like, I want to uh, withdraw or exit the program because uh, it has been very rewarding and it hasn't been too demanding or like taxing kind of thing. Yeah, because it's assignment basis and usually I take to like one to two child. I've learned a lot as well like through the process and I really enjoyed um, joining with each child. But I guess there has been difficult times that like, I felt very drained, um, whether it's emotionally or physically because after like clinical rotation and rushing down to the family or that, sometimes it can be a bit draining. But at those times, I guess it's really self-check to you know make sure you don't burn out. Because medicine and also medical school is very tiring. I mean, it's, we know that there's a different rigor compared to other degrees like engineering, you know, things like that. And the timing, like our schedules are also very different. So it's very important to have, you know, self-check, self-management and self-care. Lah. Yeah, but I haven't really reached a point where I had to exit. But I mean, COVID has forced me to exit because I was in the front line. This group is a very vulnerable group of children. So it wasn't very so for me to continue volunteering during then like, when I was facing like COVID positive patients. Okay, thank you. So I think you mentioned just now that it's very good to uh, have self-discipline and, and such, right, in order to be able to manage both volunteering as well as medical school. So is there any other things in which you use to help you juggle this volunteering service as well as helping you to keep up in school? I mean, there's no app or whatever that I use. <laughs> I think different people have different time management uh, skills. But I think for myself, what I do is that uh, every year, usually I try to, because I really enjoy volunteering, but also I run very high risk of burnout, like I've burnout before. So usually every year I try to um, reflect and calibrate in terms of which area or which sector I'm hoping to volunteer with, or I try to help, or I try to explore. Yeah, so I think it's important to commit to whatever you want to make a difference and wherever you want to go. Usually, I will not have a lot of volunteering things I want to do, but whatever that I choose to commit for that year, I try to make sure that I have a sufficient time and sufficient effort that I can put to help the beneficiaries that I want to help. Mm, thank you so much. Yeah, I think it's really important for every individual to find you know, what works for, for us um, individually in terms of time management and also to really think about who we want to help um, what is it that we are passionate about and what kind of skills we can provide to the beneficiaries and people in need. We actually didn't touch on this earlier, but I was wondering what um, what exactly motivated you to join MediMinder? So initially, when I was in second year of medical school, I think I, I really enjoyed my volunteering with HCA, even pre-medicine, because I just found it so different and so meaningful compared to other... Uh, I mean, at that point of time, palliative care was something that was really new to me. I got to chance upon it because uh, my grandfather was 
uh, also one HCA patient who was terminally ill with lung cancer. And then that's when I come into that field. I think palliative care also used to be a very, very new field, very new term to a lot of people. At the point I'm talking about when I'm 16, that is like 12 years ago. Yeah, so when I first come to HCA hospital, I remember that I was very shocked because I thought these were people who were going to die. I thought it would be something a bit more depressing. Maybe maybe people who are very sick, you know, and things like that. But when I went to the day care, I remember I was very shocked at how it was so vibrant. The conversations we have seems to carry a lot more meaning, you know. Of course, there are still superficial conversations in the sense that I'm not anti how you know, I know just casual, things like that. But sometimes the things that they share is so heartfelt and they, they are reaching like the last phase or the last few days. The things and the share, they are very, very heartfelt. And it's just a privilege uh, to be able to share that slice of life with them at the last part of their life. I really enjoyed that when I volunteered with HCA. So uh, when this piece came out, it was uh, something that was very exciting because at that point of time, actually, in medicine, I was considering pediatric, which I also did consider before I joined emergency medicine residency. But yeah, anyway, that's for another story. But piece was something that was uh, interesting. It was a specialty that I considered. So definitely, I was like, oh, PIDS childcare is something that I would like to explore more. As I shared, um, like volunteering with HCA and staff health has a very medical flavor. So in a sense, you are not required to have any medical students and all that because a lot of the volunteers are non-medical based and non-medical trained as well. But it just have a, a lot of medical flavor in the sense that, you know, these patients all have a medical conditions and helps you to empathize a little bit better what it means to be a patient what are some of the struggles what are some of the daily lives that we have like out of the ward or at the clinics yeah but these are the life that you know these people live and so in HCA and stuff else you get to go to their homes and you have a different views and perspectives so that's how I also signed up for staff health because peace was something that I was considering so that's why peace care I thought would be something that would be quite interesting yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Um, actually, I was wondering, were you involved in caring for your grandfather as well back in the days? And um, if you did, what did you learn from being a caretaker in general, from both the experience of your grandfather as well as being a mendimender? I wasn't the main caregiver. La. My grandfather didn't stay with me. I, but I remember that time, uh, there's like morphine and fentanyl, which was like, whoa, drugs that... I think my family was quite scared of like you know using it things like that yeah so that was one of the memory that I remember in terms of the needs for my grandfather I think he was still quite functional the main thing was just uh, breathlessness la, that was the most debilitating symptom so it was mainly coped with by giving morphine it was difficult for my family as in my aunts who say that like, in terms of titration because we were a bit worried of like you know overdose and all the side effects of morphine, yeah. So I, I think the uh, HCNs help to really uh, reassure some of these myths. And it really helps because when we are able to give it, he was able to be less breathless, less in pain. And there was this period where he was a bit delirious also. So, you know, with some of these medications, it really helped for him to be able to have some meaning in the sense that he can do some stuff at the last part of stuff rather than being uh, in a lot of suffering with these symptoms. So like good titration, like a physical symptom is very, very important. And this titration, sometimes it may not be 
that objective, but really is what your patient wants, you know, how awake or how uh, pain-free they are hoping to be. Yeah, it's, it's very uh, up to the patient's comfort level, which is very, very different. So similarly, I think in my experience with staff health, especially in palliative care, I think that's why there's a lot of these peculiarities and unique, like we may learn um, like how to do, like how to change tracky, how to feed PG and feeding and all that. But every patient and family, they have their own uh, way of doing things. And that's what's important in palliative care as well. Um, like what's comfortable for this child? What is this family routine uh, used to? And that's something that we need to value and we respect in palliative care. Like, that will be important. So there's a lot of communications, sharing and establishing of these uh, expectations with the medical team and the family. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. I definitely agree with um, the point about how we really need to understand each family's needs and um, tailor the care to the individual family and the patients. Yeah, I also think that what you mentioned about opioids and um, you know morphine use, especially at the end of life, can be quite a sensitive topic. And also, a lot of people might be too scared to use it and in fear of overdosing. So I'm, I'm really glad that you touch on that topic and how there are certain priorities such as making the patient comfortable that um, perhaps families should also take into account and also consult a medical professional if they ever have any doubts when it comes to usage of morphine. I also want to touch a bit about how since you are an uh, emergency um, medicine practitioner now and um, we're wondering how your experience volunteering in the MediMinder program has shaped you to be the kind of doctor that you are today? Definitely, I'm still uh, not amazing. <laughs> There's still a lot of work in progress in becoming a better physician and hopefully uh, following some of the role models and amazing doctors that I have met. But I think uh, my experience is many mother shape how I practice medicine, definitely a lot. One aspect will be the people that I meet, the nurses, the doctors, like how they deliver their care to the patient like I learned a lot from them in terms of how they ask the question how they build rapport I remember sometimes like when I go for some of these whole visits or sessions then I may have a you know sometimes there's a degree and all that that I really learned a lot from like. so that's from one another of course is the patients and the family themselves like I've shared, like everyone, every child that has passed away, um, I, I carry with them, uh, you know, in how I practice medicine, since that, um, how I also make like closure myself is that I do a reflection in terms of how have I made an impact, um, how have I helped this child and how I should be a better doctor in remembrance. Lah. So I try to do that. Of course, I may not meet in emergency medicine. I won't be meeting all the, the conditions like the child, but more of like problems I'll be a little bit more familiar with. Then another part of course, the families. So families would share with me things that they really appreciate of the MediMinders. And it has been a great experience also because um, they have been just so appreciative of the things that we do because there's really such a need out there. Every time when we go in, they are just so thankful, like whether is it because we are there so that, you know, they may not have an errand to run or all that, but they can just have some rest and they can trust you as a caregiver for their child while, you know, sometimes they're just able to offload some of their physical, emotional baggage that they have and some time and space for themselves, you know, or for the siblings caregiving for this grocery is definitely not easy and shouldn't be left to only the parents yeah it should be shared with uh, the medical team and the community out there 
I think it's very easy for me to just be bothered, especially emergency where there's so many patients and so many things that's going on along the hustle and bustle. And I'm sure when you guys work, you know, when you're on call, your phone will just keep ringing. I think it's still important to remember actually the things that, you know, the patient, it really brings perspective to what the patient cares about. You know, sometimes you may be like, wow, okay, I must do this very quickly. I must do this, do that, you know, or you are very upset on yourself for not setting this plug or not fulfilling this. You're just rushing here and there and you forget about the whole meaning of medicine, about the care that you had hoped to deliver and the medicine that you are hoping to practice. So I think I try to keep a remembrance of that as well, lah. Because the most important thing that I learned is that every patient is very different. So when I meet these patients like in the emergency as well, I know, okay, what is their normal? Because their normal is not the normal that we are comfortable with. And some of them, they may be not verbally communicative. So their parents, you know, to check with the caregiver and their parents like, okay, uh, how do they respond? What is their usual? Like, how much can they respond? Are they like more drowsy uh, than usual or that? So I've learned to really ask that kind of questions to the family and some of the things to observe from the patient that I'm a little bit more sensitive. I'm sure you guys will also learn your rotation and when you practice medicine as well. But yeah, these are some of the things that uh, I've taken away. Hmm. I can really tell that volunteering really taught you a lot about patient care and I think most notably was the point on how you mentioned that every patient has unique and specific needs. Lah. So touching more on your experience as a volunteer in the Staff Health Program and also a doctor in emergency medicine because you know you normally see a lot of patients suffering and in very critical conditions, have you ever thought about how you would like to be cared for at the end of your life? Yeah, actually, I did uh, six months of ICU before I entered uh, emergency medicine. So definitely um, extent of care, you know, that last phase and really anything. So I, I remember in ICU, sometimes some of my patients are like of our age. And that's very like, wow, you know, you never knew. And it's, it's very sudden, like in some of the circumstances. So these sometimes are moments that really jotted you into some thinking session <laughs> with your friends and HTHG session. For myself, I did have this conversation with my parents, um, who's like probably middle age, not like elderly, but yeah, it's very important to have such conversations, which I've learned through my medical journey, so I've also had them. In terms of like DNR, don't account stuff, but more of like, just what's important at the end of life. Lah. Okay, I haven't have a very clear like, idea or like, you know, about my funeral. I haven't gone to the extent of planning my funeral that... Some of my patients do. I'm like, okay, maybe next time I to do that as well, kind of thing. But for myself, I guess it's just more of what will be important for me is to be able to, in Chinese, like, jiao tai, so be able to give account as in, in terms of whatever I want to say. So, like, to have that lucidity, like, you know, to be awake enough to be able to say whatever I hope to say to my loved ones. There'll be no burden of the loved ones that's left behind, uh, to know that I've led a very, very uh, fulfilling and meaningful life, which... I have and I have been privileged to be able to bless a lot and I was also very blessed in the time in the years that I have. So I think there is no uh, regrets and so to be able to convey all that, I think it would be great uh, if there's that chance to la. Sometimes they may there may not be the trauma cases. Yeah, it's very sad. But if if there is, you know, there is, you know, if there isn't, it's fine as well. Uh, because I'm a Christian, so uh, we'll all be reunited in God's kingdom eventually. La. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I'm also really glad to hear that you've had this conversation with your parents. Um, and I think many of us probably haven't or maybe some people didn't think it's 
the right time or it's too early to have this kind of conversation. So do you have any advice for people in terms of how to really talk about death and planning ahead of time with your loved ones or your parents? I think a lot of time the trigger for this is when uh, someone in your extended family pass away or is critically ill. That, that will trigger this kind of conversation within your family like most of the time. But it's also good that now, you know, especially with a lot of awareness projects going on, like before I die and then all, all the things that Project Happy Evos are doing. I hope also that, you know, such conversations can come about. How to go about it? One way is definitely you can take a look at the Google ACP into the AIC and there's this booklet with a set of questions that you can go about. And actually, these questions may be like, I'm not sure whether y'all play this or we're not really strangers card. Yeah, so actually it's exactly, you know, questions like that, you know, where we dive into a little bit more deeper conversations. Yeah. Firstly, I think how to go about that. Uh, it really depends on the comfort level, your closeness, and how open you and your parents are. Because I still feel that there are some parents that may have very Asian type. That, you know, they don't talk about death. So sometimes when that happens, you may need a trigger. Like, trigger as in like some event, you know, then you can bring that topic in. You know, this person, this thing just happened. You know, it's quite sad and all that. But, you know, at the same time, I think it was very important. It was good that this particular relative could have some time to actually discuss what's important or that. Then actually, I was thinking what's important to you, you know, mommy, or what's important that, you know, next time if touch would Because sometimes when this happens, we won't be able to have this conversation. And um, when I was in ICU, I think the saddest part, um, like a lot of the, for the children, you know, when their parents suddenly that sudden event they will have a lot of regrets and then they try to overcompensate you know they try to push harder and push harder and they look back and they step back it's actually going to cause a lot more pain and suffering to their parents but yet because you know that guilt which is not necessary it's just that presumed guilt that you know they haven't done enough last time and they try to hold on a longer time so I feel that if you have such conversation, you know very clearly what your parent would have wanted. Then there will be less of this guilt because you are doing the best and you are doing for what your parent would have wanted rather than what you would have wanted. I think you will have this clarity for yourself and for your parents. There will be less guilt. Firstly, you have been something that your parent or yourself would have wanted anyway. Yeah, so uh, in contrary, I've met a families that are very sure because they have such conversation and they know that Definitely the one this and all that. And as healthcare team, we also know and we will respect some of these conversations and decisions that were made. I think it, there's never a one size before. In, in terms of, oh, when I want ICU, this count is very hard to tell because it depends on the medical conditions and you will need like, medical input when you're put into this medical condition. But it's more of what's important to you at the end of the day. Like, what will be things that you'll want to do when you reach that point of time? For example, like it's food, um, function like, in terms of ability to walk, I think these are some of the examples, but it's never and like some for some people it's just maybe being able to see this particular milestone. There's like what will be in their mind and what will be the thing that they are living for. And once again, this is a continual conversation. It's not like okay, today that's it. Uh. Okay, we thought like the end of conversation. You know, sometimes when life progresses, when you get married, like that, there may be other things that your parents or your loved ones will want to see, or they may have different desires and different hopes and different things that they need for us. Sometimes they may have felt that they have lived a good life already, you know. Yeah, everything else they will leave it to God and things like that. So just sometimes having these heartfelt conversations like, with your parents important. Like once in a while, I know sometimes we're very caught up with life. Yeah, so just remember to check in with your loved ones. Yeah, once in a while. Mm. Um. Okay. So actually, I we really agree with you like, in the sense that like you know Singapore Asian culture and people don't really like to have all these conversations. 
And I think you also mentioned a very important point on how these conversations have to be continual in nature, not like a one-time thing, because preferences and what we want in life will change as we grow older and go through more experiences. But we have just one last question for you. So, you know, Singapore is experiencing an aging population and a declining birth rate. So most of us will be taking care of our elderly and perhaps our own parents soon too. Other than starting all these end-of-life planning and convos early, do you have any advice for other or soon-to-be caretakers out there? This is like going to Jerry, <laughs> like aging and aging well in Singapore. Okay, my perspectives for this is that, yeah, firstly, we will be a sandwich population. Uh. They will come to a point of time because of the advances in medical care or that everyone is living longer. Yeah, but the question is really whether we are living well and we are aging well. Uh. To be honest, this is something that uh, has been on my mind in the sense of reflection and thinking and finding a bit more about aging and how are we aging in the society. What triggered this was that, you know, elderly suicide actually is on the rise. You know, isolation, loneliness in elderly, disconnection has always been something on the rise. Tying to that also is that the medical conditions that some elderly actually have never been empathizing on the aspect so well in the sense that actually it can be very very debilitating for someone especially when you have cancer you never be able to get off your past medical history it's always there even if it's surgically removed chemotherapy already in remission and things like that but you know you have to go for surveillance sometimes it recurs and just a very long drawn process so what triggered me was that when there was this like 60 plus years old was very debilitated by just an autoimmune condition and just like huh this one is very treatable I mean it's just like having a blood pressure take medicine take immunosuppressant and that's it right it's not not even cancer not even something that has prognosis you know but it's something that can actually be very daunting to people uh, and to elderly and I think some I don't uh, empathize that well enough yeah in an elderly basic committee suicide, which was very shocking to me. La. Yeah, but I think and then okay, some drama that I also watched, some documentary that I also watched elderly suicide. Yeah, I think firstly, something I ponder, you know, actually how much uh, the medical condition may mean to one, may not be just uh, to you and I as medical professionals in and out. It would be like, oh, this one easy, the very easy condition. And this one, wow, okay, a bit more daunting. But this is just our perspectives as physicians, but different patients may take it very differently. But back to the question on advice on how we can care for our parents better. Firstly, in terms of the system, I think we can do better in terms of having more facilities and the structure of our systems. Whether in terms of coordinating the care better between different specialties from the medical point of view or whether in terms of infrastructure. So if you look at how we plan, how we meet the care of our elderly, so there is institutionalized care, like nursing homes and all. Are we doing very good there? I, I wonder myself. Recently, I've been helping with the home vaccination team at nursing home and also volunteer at nursing home. It always brings a tinge of sadness. Lah. And with COVID, it's even worse. That's why it needs to be a little bit more vibrant because there's different groups of volunteers that go down and everything. And COVID is just a little bit more sad, you know whether that is the right way to go. I'm not sure whether I, I have not visited myself in like uh, the residential care like in institution in UK and all, but I heard it's a lot more different. Yeah, a lot more person-centered care, even in institutionalized uh, settings. So that's one. Then second is when we look at like rental flats for elderly and all. It's a very efficient way of care where you know there's senior IT center, library, furniture just right under the block. But are we also isolating them away from a lot of the other things? 
as it may be efficient, it may be easy to bring in you know different services to them. But are we also putting them away from the thing? Like, is there a better way we can go about it? Like, for example. I'm not too sure how the concept will be for elderly lab. I also volunteer with special needs like Rainbow School and everything. I remember that time I always envisioned a day whereby, you know, our primary school, our mainstream school can accommodate special needs. Because, for example, I've never interacted with a special needs uh, child until like when I'm 16 years old. Because they have just been kept one side, right? Out of view, out of mind. I've barely seen them at MRT because it's just so inaccessible at that point of time. But now a lot of such accessibility is being improved and that's why we see them in the community a lot more. I think visibility is one thing. Like, they shouldn't be a hidden community. Yeah, so that's second. And then the third is uh, caring for them at home in terms of the support that's required. A lot of us will be working and then if we have to support our parents who may have various forms of needs or disability when they are aging, how can we help? Like, what will be the resources that will be required? So, a lot of them currently is tapped on foreign domestic worker. But I'm sure if you keep on the news, there's a lot more restrictions now they are having on foreign manpower. It's not going to be easy. Then, are Singaporeans willing to take out the job? Are we willing to care for the aged population? Are we going to give training, give special recognition, to give more salary to these skill-based needs? So for example, you say like nurse room, we can ask like, you know, how much remuneration like in terms of salary and things that they're getting, that needs to be a lot more to that lah, so that we can be better supported to be able to continue our work. Otherwise, you will hear that, you know, you just have to stop work, right? Either that or put family members in institution. Otherwise, there's like really no way out. So COVID has been a big struggle. I'm not too sure how many of you are in the ward. So some of them, they are waiting for foreign domestic worker, which is going to be really long to come. These are some of the challenges and I don't have an answer. I'm still reading and finding out more. And definitely, every one of you out there need to know that you have a part to play in the healthcare system. And of course, there will also be a lot of jadedness, tiredness, or frustrations with the healthcare system that I'm sure you have also been hearing with the COVID surges and what we have been experiencing on the ground. Update me, PRM, and probably give a flavor to it as well, to some of the disgruntles that we have. But I just hope that we can put in that effort. We can be on both sides. We can exit leave. We can also do our best to see how we can make a difference, make a change, or at least not be part of the frustrations of the system. Mm. I agree. I think you raised very relevant points on how there is social isolation in the elderly population in Singapore, as well as on how home care support for the elderly is you know, very heavily dependent on foreign domestic workers, especially in the COVID world today. That's a problem because of a lot of restrictions on all these workers. Lah. So I think it'll be very challenging going forward, but I feel that a lot more effort has to be put in as well. Yeah, and so I agree with you. That's it from us today. So we'd actually really like to thank you for joining us. And it was really very, very inspiring to hear you share about your experiences as well as your perspectives. Lah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us, Janice. It was really inspiring to hear you share about your experiences and perspectives. For those of you listening to this podcast, if you would like to contribute your time meaningfully as a MediMinder with HCA Hospice Care, please head over to www.hca.org.sg forward slash volunteer to find out more. And we will see you guys soon in the next episode.